what has been a long time coming, I think, to get through uh, the prologue of uh, John's Gospel. This is maybe uh, the fifth sermon in uh, 14, 6, 18 verses. The invitation that the Lord gave us, particularly with this question of how should we compare anything to him, Beginning here in the 14th verse of John, I would like you to consider that once more, one final time this Christmas Eve, and consider the point of this word for you tonight, is that when we come to understand that we really don't understand the fullness of God, And his progress, his motions toward us in grace, to you even today in your heart. That's the very reason why he can be so close to you, and yet so very different. If you think you have him figured out, then you'll never understand him. So hear this word of God to you. And the Word, this eternal Word, uncreated Word, God Himself, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes before me, comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, yet grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The point of this final section of John's words about Jesus Christ is to relay this narrative, this progress of how God has continually been making motions toward us as humanity throughout the history in love. And each motion toward us in love has only increased. There's a progress of God's grace and his mercy and his love throughout the history of humanity. And so the question for us tonight, the question I'm posing to you tonight is to consider where are you going to fit inside of this all-encompassing, immeasurable, immense God, infinite, that he here, John, is comparing what God once did with Moses and now what he has done with Christ. And the implication would be If he will go this far to come this close, the gospel message stands for all who receive him and believe upon his name. He who gives them the right to become children of God. Now you can resist and you can try to push him out, but he has happened to be infinite and there is no place you can go. It's a beautiful gospel. You're surrounded in love whether you like it or not. It's a remarkable thing. 
See, the comparison, he says this. John is setting it up to say the goodness of God is progressive. He speaks of Moses, this man in history, this man no one in the scriptures knew God or, or had closer communion with God than Moses. He's the one who saw God. He's the one who said, show me your glory in Exodus 33. And God responded, I will let my goodness pass before you, Moses. I will show you something of the glory of my goodness. And I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, before you. And it was Moses who then shortly after was put inside the cleft of a rock. So that he could, of course, the image is clear, not see the fullness of God. Because it's impossible to know the fullness of God. And so God says to him, in a very language-like similarity analogy of a body. That God, in there, in the middle of the scriptures, says, Now you can look at the back of my head, but not my face. In fact, I'll take my hand as if God could have a hand. And I'll put it in front of you so you can't see me. All this language... Considering all the more in which Isaiah says, Now who could you compare me to? God having a hand or a back or face? Yet here we are. Understanding the word has become flesh. And so the Lord appeared before Moses. And he pronounced the uniqueness of his glory that he has for those who are his enemies. For you and me. He said. The Lord. The Lord. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in. Steadfast love. And faithfulness. And this is John's word. That's where he gets the terms he uses. In his Greek language. Where he says. That we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father who is full of grace and full of truth. Full of steadfast love and full of faithfulness. And this is the progress. This is the question. He's laying it out to say, now where will you stand in this progression? That there once was a time in which God came pretty close with Moses. Now we live in a time where he has even come within a body like ours. He came to his own. They received him not. They killed him on the cross. He rose again, forgave them their sins, filled them with the Spirit, bended their wills to see the glory of God. It's not looking very good for anybody that wants to resist him. That it's the goodness of God. The goodness of God revealed in a way that truly just can't be understood. He says this, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. That is, God himself coming to us as a baby. Instantiating himself in a body, that from that moment, something different has happened. There was grace with Moses, there was light with Moses, there was a plan of God revealing himself through Moses, and that was grace. 
But now it is grace upon grace. More light, more vision, more knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. The point of the gospel for this is that unlike all our human relations, this one cannot run dry. I don't know if you've had the experience of really losing meaningful friends in your life. It hurts almost as much as death if they're close enough friends. Because in death, that's a separation by involuntary circumstances. But when you have close friends, and the grace runs dry, there's no more trust, there's no more love, you separate and functionally become dead to one another, even though you might live down the road. The glory of the gospel is that there is an impossibility of God denying you. That from his fullness, there always is grace and truth. For our relationships can end with a difference. That difference produces a division. That division produces a distance. And then eventually being functionally dead from one another. But for God himself, being full of grace and truth, the Christmas story, that is, this story of love, a progression of God that cannot be thwarted or put away with, that he would infuse you with his spirit and cause you to bow to him in adoration, that even if you were to try to resist him, to try to be faithless, to try to be feckless, that he will bring life upon you. That he will always be true to his promises. That he would not move an inch. That his grace, that is this love, undeserved favor, unmitigated, no conditions of your own, no merits of your own, no good that you could offer. Faithfulness that he would never leave you or forsake you or ever part from you. That that is instantiated, that is incorporated in a body, a man, like you and I. And he will never be ignored. That he stands before the whole world and commands, come to me. All who are hungry, and you can have food without price. If you are thirsty, I am the wellspring of living water. For from me flows the source of life. I am the fullness of God. In flesh. I am full of grace and truth. His love could not be exhausted. The progress is clear. In the beginning of this gospel, John points out that this word became flesh. With Moses, the word he uses is a tent. That at one point in time, God dwelt in a tent. And now he says the word tabernacled among us, built a tent with us in his own body, coming closer. Moses, at one point in time, sought to see God's back, and now John is saying, we have seen the glory of God walking with us, fishing with us, sleeping with us. He's coming closer. And Moses, at one point in time, had God's name pronounced to him, that he was given this title, that God is full of grace and truth. But you see here, what John says. The verse is, the law was given through Moses. 
but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That is, the idea of grace and truth, the idea of God's love was proclaimed to Moses. But now, grace and truth itself has arrived. It has came. It is there. He's coming closer. This gospel is of greater grace. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. If you ever have eaten a salad that has no salad, an antipasta salad, it's called antipasta. There's, well, a lot going on in there with meat and Italian things. Whatever Italian people do, they have amazing culture. Thank you for the Italians and their antipasta salad. It says here, Karen ante karatos, grace ante, anta, grace, grace in place of grace. Perhaps it could be translated. Grace that replaces grace. A grace that was only spoken of and given away through Moses and all who came before Christ. But in Christ, grace has come. Grace is actualized. His life was given for you. Not just spoken about, but given for you. This is a progress. It's like a man trying to find his lost wife who's abandoned him for another. And he gives one rose. She throws it in the garbage. He gives two roses the next day. She throws in the garbage. Until he gives everything he has for a woman that deserves nothing. She can't deny that he loves him. The fullness, the resource he has to shower love upon those he pursues. He cannot be thwarted. And so, this greater grace, in light of this progress that we see here in John, we are not permitted, and this is the problem, we are not permitted to presume that we have a handle on the goodness and the glory of God. We are not permitted to think we have it figured out. And here's the prime example or question of why. Or someone will say, as often is said, yes, we say, Christians, you confess that Jesus is God and man. And you say, Christians, you say that he is infinite and unbounded and mysterious and all-powerful, yet he's also man. You say, well, doesn't that seem a little ridiculous, a little far-fetched, a little illogical? Only if you think you know God. Now, it's kind of late, and I normally don't throw around theological terms this late after, after dinner. 
But the term will be extra Calvinisticum. If you never heard that, you might be thinking, no thank you, I already ate. (laughs) I'll say, if you think it's that, it's not. Extra Calvinisticum. It's the Calvinistic extra in theology. It's saying nothing more than this. That he is one person with two natures. He is fully divine and fully human. And in no way does his humanity thwart his divinity. In no way are they mixed in a fashion that he becomes less human or less divine. Or more than human and less than divine. That is, in no way has God constituted his creation in which he would ever be in competition with his creation. There is no way in which God could in some way be limited by what he has made. There is no way in which God could not be man. Because, as Isaiah says, the problem is you think you're too much like him. You think you live on the same sphere as him. You think if you two were to cross a road, you would bump into each other. As though he is not possessing and infusing this whole room and your soul and your veins and the immaterial part of your soul, the spirit sustaining your life. He has no competition with us. He can do and come and go as he pleases. And it pleased him to love you. It pleased him to become like you, for you could never be like him. Earlier this afternoon, I was with my daughter, Violet, and this conversation has happened more times than I can count, but it happened today again. She was, I think, trying to come to me with her little fingers and tickle me. And she does this little sound when she's trying to tickle me. And I said, you're so cute. And here's the problem with anyone that thinks they understand God. Reject this great gospel that he has condescended to give you. Because what she said to me was, I'm not cute. I'm violet. She got a little angry about it. And I said, oh, Well, there we go. I'm sorry. No, in fact, my experience is that cuteness and violetness are not actually at odds with one another. My experience is that violet is cute and cute is violet. But you see, we're just children. God became a man. It's not God, he's a man. He's not man, he's God. You think you know me. Our wisdom is no higher than children when it comes to our Heavenly Father. See, that God became man. He is not in competition with us. He is so far above us that yes, if you can believe today for your good and His glory, God became man to save you And to bring you to life everlasting. To come into his presence. And to behold his likeness. Which is your likeness. That there will be a glory that is 
Satisfying everything in this world is not satisfying. Depression and anxiety and death and everything missing. It is all there for this reality that we were meant for him. And he has constituted himself to bring us in. Why resist him? Everything you have is from him. And he has come down so low to be with you and to give his life for you. This is our gospel that our Lord has become like us out of love for us that is full of grace and truth can never be exhausted or put our hands around or bounded up in some can and quantified and sold in some commercialism. It is God's glory to save you this way. And he can do it. In fact, he planned it. He directed it this way. Orson Welles was a famous actor from the 20th century. You might have heard uh, the movie Citizen Kane. It's a pretty popular movie, did really well. He was one of the first ones, first actors that is, to kind of break out of that role. See, with Citizen Kane, he became not only the director but the producer, and the star actor. Not many have done that before, that movie in the 1940s. That is, he was Orson Welles, and at the same time, he was Charles Foster Kane, a wealthy newspaper magnate. Yes, that's it. The eternal God. Who upholds all things? Came into his own world that he made and directed. And he surely has taken the star leading role. For you. That is, can you see the love of God in such a way that the fullness of his love to take on this flesh, that as he was born, though through his Mary mother. He also sustained and upheld her, as Romans 11.29 says, for from him and through him all things are. That is, as they were calling for him to be crucified on the tree, his divinity never ceased to be all-powerful, directing and maintaining those lives wished for his death, and the tree that supported his own body as he died there for you in love... As Colossians 1.17 says, For before him he was all, and all things are in him, and in him all things hold together. Even the cross that held his own body in his incarnation, his own divinity supported it, maintained it, and had it happen for your good, for love of your soul. His soul suffered so. That is, even you and I here now, in this room, with all the awe and wonder and reverence, acknowledge that we worship a Christ who is the one true God, but he is also the radiance, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds you right now by the word of his power. He is the light of the world. He is 
the one who reveals the Father. John says, no one has ever seen the Father. But he who is at his side has made him known. Dear Father God, Lord, we ask that we would come here to you now, Lord, and remember that you truly are our light. In you, in your light, we have light. We ask, Lord, that in this closing evening, Lord, as we look to a new year even, that you would reveal yourself to us. We do not know you. We cannot comprehend you. So when you say you have come to us, Lord, well, of course, who could ever stop you? You are unbounded and unable to be controlled. And for that reason, Lord, no one will stop your grace and your mercy to us. So, Father, we confess our sins. We confess our weakness. We ask, Father, that we would live in the light of your glory. Live in the light of what is your grace and your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.